Hey guys, we're live. Hi, David. Thank you so much for coming on to Venture with Grace today. Thank you. Okay, so to give the audience a little bit of background of David, David is a venture partner with Cool Water Capital, a GP stake investor and accelerator for emerging VC managers. He is a founder of Versatile VC, backing investment tech companies, which help investors generate alpha and succeed. He is also chair of VC. PEVC Tech, a community of investors in private companies using tech and analytics to generate alpha. Welcome, David. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to have the conversation. Amazing. Okay, so what about we start with David? Like, what are you working on today? And then, what are some top like priorities for you? Um, so, Cool Water Capital, we effectively are Y Combinator for emerging VC funds. We're looking for the next generation of top performing fund managers. We help them launch, raise initial capital. What we find is a typical person who's building an emerging VC. They previously were an exited tech founder. They were product manager at a top tech company, um, but they very rarely were the manager, the CEO of a VC fund. At best, they were maybe a junior partner at another established VC fund. So we provide all the infrastructure for them to get off the ground uh, and become an institutional VC. We're well aware that VC is the highest dispersion of returns of any asset class. So we're identifying the next generation of Sequoias and other top performing funds. So top priority for us is identifying those top performing managers. And I hope some of the folks in the audience today will consider applying for the Cool Water program. Um, at Versatile VC, we're focused on how investors can use technology and analytics to accelerate alpha. Our view is if you look at the public markets, there's a multi-decade trend towards greater use of technology and analytics. Hedge funds like D, Shaw, and Two Sigma, internally, they look more like a software company than like Warren Buffett using a pencil going through a 10K, which admittedly has worked very well for Buffett, with due respect. Um, but we think the next generation of top performing private equity VC funds, they're going to use technology and analytics systematically in order to generate better returns and also to scale, right? Because this business has a lot of manual complexity to it. Um, so that's why we are looking to invest in companies that sell to investors. And our community, PVC Tech, is a place where we can uh, provide resources, provide research and run events, helping other investors upgrade their game through use of technology analytics. So we're always looking for new folks to join our community and uh, looking to partner with people there. Uh, I'll add one other opportunity for many of the folks in the Venture with Grace community is we have an ongoing series where we profile different investors, tech stacks. What are they using in-house to run their firm? And we're doing that because we want to help everyone upgrade their game. And it makes it much easier when you can see how your peer, another emerging manager, what choices did they make in their CRM, in their uh, use of uh, modern AI technologies so that you can hopefully speed up your own process of building out your own firm. Amazing. Um, well, this is such a great introduction. So I should have not introduced you. I should let you introduce yourself at the beginning. But anyway, so I have so many questions in that um, category of things. So like, you know, the tech stack, um, like I wonder, so to give the audience a little bit of um, background of like how it works, I feel like in investing, I would separate them into like three bracket of things that you need to do. Like number one is, so as a emerging manager or like solo GPs or like people who are interested in potentially starting a fund one day, there is like, you know, the fundraising part. So you have to fundraise. And then um, I hope we could talk, cover some um, tools and like tactics for people who fundraise. And then the middle part is like deal sourcing. You know, you have to, you know, VC is essentially like a sales process. Um, not like VC, like it's kind of like a sales job, right? So like at the beginning, you are selling yourself to LPs and then you are selling yourself to like potential, like the best portfolios or like best potential portfolios. And then number three, it's like you have to have an exit. You have to know how to kind of like calculate your returns and then make sure like your portfolio is um, good, like overall. So I wonder to start, maybe we could talk about in terms of like fundraising, what are things that people use to fundraise and i want to highlight that like you know for fundraising i could think of like you know as a um wanna be solo gp or whatever like i i'm i'm constantly thinking about like what is my differentiating strategy 
And like, you know, some people are highly technical and then they're really focused on deep tech. And then there are some people are focusing on like, you know, a specific sector in like, you know, consumer space. And like, I wonder, um, can you share more about like, what is your thinking framework? Number one, picking a strategy. Number two, like picking the right tools to go with your strategy. So you're bringing up a lot of different issues. Let's zoom in on fundraising. Before we even talk about fundraising, we have to talk about your product, the fund that you're selling, because that's more important than your actual fundraising skill and network. Mm -hmm. The right product will excite LPs and the wrong product will not. And mm -hmm. it doesn't matter how many wealthy individuals you know, if you have a bad product, you're not gonna get much money from them. So at first think about how do you upgrade your product? In your case, your syndicate, what deals have you done? What are the returns on those deals? Um, and what are they, what's the nature of the LPs who have invested in that syndicate, right? That's obviously a standard way now that people build up their track record as an emerging VC if you're not already working at an institutional mm -hmm. VC, but you want to graduate from being an angel to running a, a syndicate. Um, so my general view is it's much, much easier to fundraise by getting LPs to come to you as opposed to you trying to have coffee meetings all over your city, trying mm -hmm. to get to the LPs. You can bring up a lot of cycles. Doing okay. that. Anyway, um, that's that's a great suggestion. But how do we build to a point that like LPs will come to you? Yeah, so there are a couple of ways you can do that. Um, first, I'll highlight that you don't want to meet just random people with money, because if your target market is random people with money, you're competing with every other possible investment option in the universe. Mm -hmm. That is a terrible strategic positioning. Um, what you might want to do in my case is meet with allocators, uh, investors who are excited about uh, inv investment technology, technology that helps investors generate alpha. So those are usually people mm -hmm. who work at large institutional investors, maybe lenders or hedge funds place like that, where they realize that a lot of their firm runs in Excel and thinking, gee, maybe this is not best practice. Those people resonate with what we're doing. For Coolwater yeah. Capital, the LPs who tend to resonate with us are people who realize that uh, there are disproportionate returns among emerging managers, but most institutional allocators are very shy to invest in actual emerging managers, right? The incentives mm. of the institutional investment industry are very much weighted to invest in a fund three of a, a well-known firm. Mm -hmm. um, and so we are a vehicle by nature of the fact that we have graduated at Coolwater 185 VC funds, which have collectively mm -hmm. raised over $2 billion. Um, we are a vehicle to plug in innovation at scale. So how do we identify those people who care about innovation at scale. Well, they're economic development agencies, right? So we're in conversation with certain government entities in certain parts of the world who want to create their own Israel, right? Their own mm. super high powered, greatly disproportionate innovation ecosystem. And they realize that someone who knows how to build VC funds can help them do that. Um, and so we will make a point of participating in conferences around economic development or around innovation because the sort of people who attend those conferences will relate to us. We also have a history of organizing events. So for example, uh, I've been a part of organizing numerous events and I have others in queue, which you can see on my website, around how investors can generate alpha. So who shows up for an event around family office technology? We have several events this year we're involved with around how family offices manage their internal tech stack. You could guess it, it's people who work as the CIO uh, chief information officer, sometimes also chief investment officer of a family office who are sitting on, let's say, a billion in assets and they realize Excel doesn't cut it. And they're thinking, OK, what do we use to grow this firm? Right. So those sort of people realize that they need to upgrade their game and those people are more likely to resonate. So I think it's a better use of time to spend a couple hours organizing an event around your particular theme than it is to go have coffee meetings with a few people. At an event, you get 100 people, and then you have the coffee meetings with a subset of 100 people, right? But they're already pre-qualified. You already look credible to them because they saw you in the leadership role at the event. And that event did your lead gen for you. And those events could be live, could be virtual. Um, obviously, writing, meaning publishing content, uh, generates leads as well. But I will say events are a lot more effective in my experience um, hmm. in, uh, in identifying people actually writing checks. I find that when you write about stuff, you get a lot of companies who want money from you. It's much rarer to get people approach you saying, hi, I want to give you money. 
And that probably reflects the dynamics of how allocators think mm -hmm. as opposed to capital seekers. Totally. I was actually, I'm working on my event on February 15. And then I wonder, like, if you're putting together a event, who would you invite? Is that other um, so my or is it like LPs or what's a the theme? So uh, there are a couple of models that I use. One model is I partner with other people who will inevitably have a non-overlapping set of LPs. And mm. we'll have a friendly relationship and I'll say, look, I'll let you come to the event, but I want you to invite five qualified LPs. And that brings in some people who I don't know. Another model I've used successfully in the past is I'll partner with established organizations like university alumni clubs, uh, like some of the, the uh, like I'm an advisor to Culture Shifting Lab, which is a group for um, black, brown, and other uh, uh, underrepresented VCs. And those sort of organizations, they have their own mailing list, their own community, and they're usually very receptive to people getting involved with them because they always want more events and more programming, right? And so this effectively gives me a way to tap that community's mailing list and community, and some subset of them will resonate with whatever it is that I'm selling. Mm. I wonder like, okay, so I think that's such a great strategy. And I wonder like when you're thinking about picking a niche, right? Like, so um, a lot of the creator turned GPs or like creator turned solo GPs, especially um, a lot of people were their niche is like their audience, like, so whatever their audience think they should do kind of. Um, but like, I wonder like what, how do you pick a solid, like solid, like, sector that's actually going to generate the returns right like so eventually we're selling a financial product at one point like so what is the way like what is like the thinking framework to you know pick the best niche for you in particular so uh, it's very rare that someone mounts a systematic search and then picks a niche um mm -hmm. i'd say the much more common dynamic is they and i as someone who does that i commend them for being thoughtful about it is people are on a certain career track for whatever reasons, right? Because of the major they chose in college and whatever job they happen to get post-college. And then after they've done it for a few years, they say, oh, gee, I've I can start angel investing. Then they grow up and be a VC. And so because they worked in, for sake of argument, semiconductors for five years, they're not going to be very credible investing in consumer software, right? Mm -hmm. They should invest in semiconductors and start that. Now, maybe if they're very successful, at a certain point, you can invest in whatever the heck you want and people will give you money. But you should always start with wherever you have the highest credibility. Mm -hmm. My view is that as an entrepreneur or an emerging manager, you should be as little creative as possible, mm -hmm. right? You should try and have a natural narrative path from whatever you did previously in your life to what you're doing now, because then you have clear expertise and relationships that you can draw on and you're already trying to recreate yourself. If you were previously yeah. an operator like yourself and you're reinventing yourself as a VC, right? You have a harder burden because you, you are making changes to how you are seen in the market. But the burden is lower when you're saying, I'm investing the sort of things that I worked in in my prior life. Mm -hmm. Totally. Um, but what if like your the sector is not as predictable? And because I feel like any consumer tech company compared to a B2B company, is a lot harder it's like b2b company i feel like found a founder have invested themselves into a certain career and then they uh you know basically if they make enough effort they will make some sort of progress with the company but i feel like as for consumer tech company it's really hard to pick what the customer will like adapt it's so much unpredictability and if your sector happened to be that like how like, should you change to a different sector or like, how do you see people successfully reinvent themselves into the game? Yeah. So this is a career question. So I think about it this way. Um, in an ideal world, you have a great job with a great manager and great mentors and you're at a great company in an industry which is growing. So mm -hmm. for example, if you're a, um, you could be an HR executive at any big company, but mm -hmm. if you happen to be an HR executive who's working at chat GPT, right? Or, mm -hmm. Sorry, open AI, right? Like your value in the market is 5X what it is for everyone else. Mm -hmm. right? It's considered a, a hot company. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, so in an ideal world, you'll pick the company based both on the job that you're actually doing there and mm -hmm. also the, the industry in which it is, which you believe is gonna be a growth sector. Mm -hmm. I will emphasize this is a lot harder than it sounds 
VC history is absolutely full of examples of sectors that were red hot and everyone wanted to work in them and then it blew up and all those people got into crypto, right? Mm -hmm. You know, they have a lot of few opportunities than they had a few years ago because crypto is not as hot. Um, but that said that it is helpful for even someone who's not an angel at all, not an investor at all, they should think like a VC and trying to identify the growth sectors of the future um, because they will absolutely benefit if they are in an industry that is growing. Totally. Okay. So let's chat about, since like our topic is about tax stacks. So I kind of like, I was thinking about how we should categorize them. Like, um, obviously you can see at least like 18 stuff categories, <laughs> chat topics, but like, I wonder when you were thinking about like, let's say in terms of fundraising, right? Like it's a um, sales cycle. And then after you like create the events, how would you leverage technology to go about it? Yeah, so the first thing is gather the data. So ideally, you are uh, you have figured out the structure of your relationship with the other people involved in this event such that you have the rights to the list of registrants, mm -hmm. names, emails, titles, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. If you can't get that, right, because, for example, you're partnering with an entity which keeps that data tight, which I understand. So um, one thing I, I will always do is I'll download the speaker list off the website. So I have a record of that because that's usually public. Um, and I will uh, make sure that I have some archive copy of the of the names of the people who are there, maybe because I uh, uh, see that they pre-registered for one of the sub workshops because certain events, you know, you have a, a little roundtable group and sometimes you get those names. Right? you want to make sure you get all those names. And mm -hmm. the reason is because in your follow-up email, my, my experience is very, very consistent. If you follow mm -hmm. up and you say, oh, I see we're at this conference together. Oh, I see we registered for the same workshop together. You have a much higher response rate, even if you never actually interacted with a person, you didn't actually mm -hmm. shake hands. But if they see there's this point of affinity, we're in the same room at the same time, they're much more likely to pay attention to your email. And mm -hmm. so that is very, very helpful. Then you want to enrich that data. Tools like Clearbit are helpful for that. Um, let's say you only have their emails, you don't have their title and employer and their LinkedIn and so on. Um, Clearbit and other vendors will help you to enrich all the data so you can pull it into your CRM and then follow up as appropriate. Speed absolutely matters. Ideally, you would follow up within 24 hours with those mm -hmm. people um, so that you can uh, make your pitch for whatever you're selling. Mm -hmm. um, parenthetically, many, many years ago, I had a job interview um, for, with a, a firm and I walked out of the interview and I went to a local Kinko's and I wrote my thank you note. I typed it, printed it out. This, and then I walked back and hand delivered. And this is all within two hours. And the guy was like, wow, and I got the job offer, right? Why? Because I was really fast. And I am sure I, that was the fastest thank you note he ever got from uh, an applicant. So that model uh, is a generalizable model. I wonder, like, I think <laughs> that's that's really cool. But I feel like if today I let's say I meet someone at their tech company and then I go out print something, when I go back, the security will just stop me. Hey, who are you meeting today? <laughs> but um, I really like that analogy for like, you know, quickly keeping in touch with these people. I feel like the moral of the story definitely applies to today's age. Um, I wonder, like, what's your thought on like, in terms of running the second follow-up meeting so this is like not about tech stack but i this just come to my mind but anyway so let's say i meet you at a conference and i like later on i follow up for a coffee chat with you how would you run these chats um so when i go into a meeting i always have a bullet list of the points i want to cover um the and i usually try and structure it as I want the other person to talk as much as possible because my goal is not to talk. My goal is to listen and learn. But I have some agenda, right? I'm trying to sell something or I want uh, to, to set up some sort of business relationship. So I want to make sure I cover those three bullets. And ideally, the other person brings it up and they say, OK, gee, I'm interested in investing in your fund. If they don't say that, then I'm going to say that and say, you know, are you actively allocating to funds like ours um, and then take it from there. So. Um, I find it very helpful to start with certain standard questions, which are how much time do you have? And then I honor it. So if they say have half an hour, I will flag it at the 29 minute mark um, and say, you mentioned only half an hour. Sometimes say, you know, I have some flexibility. But the fact that I honor it, right, that I was paying attention, I remember they said half an hour, 
that says that I'm the sort of person who tracks commitments and and honors whatever restrictions they have. Um, and that, I think, sets the relationship off on a good foot. Um, I also uh, always start by learning more about their non-financial imperatives. So it's very, very typical that I'll meet with, say, a family office. And sure, they want to, the, the, the generic family office wants to grow their wealth and they want to not lose very much, right? That's generically how they all think. But they always have some idiosyncrasies, right? They've got some next gens who are looking for an internship. They want to invest in stuff in real estate because they made their money in real estate, right? They have some sort of wrinkles. So I always ask about that first because I never want to be in the position of I'm just selling returns, right? Because as we talked about earlier, that's the worst possible competitive situation to be in. I want to sell, I'm selling access to innovation. I'm selling access to the next generation of elite VC funds. I'm selling access to direct investments into the top performing uh, companies of the next cohort of 2024 startups. And different people resonate with different extras that I can offer, but I want to know in advance. Mm. So basically you're selling some sort of information of like innovation as well as like selling, you know, some insights technically for the for that coffee meeting. So uh, many years ago, I worked in an advertising agency and in advertising, there's this aphorism that people buy on the sizzle and they justify on the stick. In other words, they think they'll say that they invest because, oh, you had great returns, but they're really investing because of emotion and other other factors. And that is, in my experience, very much true. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I try and understand what are their emotional drivers? What are their other goals they're serving? Because you can always there are always multiple ways to justify investing in a fund that has good returns or doesn't have returns because it's a startup mm -hmm. fund. Um, but if you can hit their other goals, then you are more likely to actually win the sale. How would you walk through these meetings? I found it really hard to, I mean, I'm just, this is just me walking through this kind of like sales cycle situation into your hat, into my hat, right? So like if someone come to me and ask me to invest, so I have like actually been, some people have reached out to me over LinkedIn about like their funds and then they walk me through a full on pitch without me even realizing I was being pitched because I was getting these connecting calls and then people start pitching. And then I was like, what, what am I getting myself into? And like, so I feel like I wonder, like I didn't really want to create any experience for people who go into a, like a coffee meeting with me to be like hearing my full on pitch of a certain subject or like, here's my 45 industry insights. Like how, how would you run this in a list? Like, like just like, weird way to like make sure that people understand what you're doing but also like they're like kind of prepared so i don't want people to be like oh actually we don't invest in like this sector or, or like you know this is too small of a track or like too whatever so like basically i wonder how would you kind of like run this and then you know since we're talking about technology like what is what is like the five tools that you would use to build a system to do it in a more scalable way so what you're referring to is qualifying and so one of my standard questions is to qualify them are you actively investing in funds and uh what check size do you write and if they say no the conversation is going to go going to go down a different path and maybe i'll just end the conversation early and say i don't think this is a fit and i don't think i can be helpful right i don't want to waste their time or my time um so um, if they can't say that they're actively investing funds, then it's not a good fit. And these people who are approaching you, that's their fault, right? They should qualify you. And if you're not personally an investor in funds, I mean, they might want to meet with you for their other reasons. But if their goal is fundraising right now from Grace and you're not investing funds, you know, that, that doesn't make sense. Um, so uh, to your question about scalability. So um, I, I've wrestled with this for a long time. So typically I get pings regularly from people like, hey, let's get together for coffee. So almost all the time they're looking for money or a job, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the top two, occasionally a date. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I'm less- You're married, okay? I'm just, I'm just not, no, they don't want to date with me. They're hoping I know someone. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, uh, my, my wife doesn't let me date. Um, so. Uh, so I, I will ask that. I'll say, like, how can I be helpful? What's the goal? Because I'll never meet with someone without some indication of what the goal is. Um, because, again, I don't want to waste my time. Um, 
And it's actually, I don't think it reflects very well on them. If they don't tell me upfront, right, that like, I want to know, it's a perfectly reasonable question on my part to say, what's the goal? Um, and I'd rather just be upfront, they're looking for money and then, you know, maybe I can help them, maybe not, maybe I'll invest, maybe not. Um, so I, uh, I have a pretty high bar for taking a meeting because there's sort of an endless deluge of people who want to meet. Um, and I'd much rather have a quick email exchange and point them to a past blog post than spend half an hour um, doing the same thing. And in fact, that's partly how I've ended up writing so much of my blog is because I've had so many meetings in my life and I sort of say the same thing over and over again, which I think is typical for a lot of business people, right? You have certain scripts you use. So I just convert the script into a blog post and then publish it. And then I point to that um, mm. in order to allow me to, to scale my time. So um, that's actually probably my number one point of advice on that is I've been writing for a long time because I've been meeting with people for many years and they're they fall into these patterns over and over again and so uh, i found that to be a big time time saver to publish the sanitized versions of my notes and then use my blog as my public repository of notes on different topics on which i have expertise mm, i love that and by the way everyone should check out david's blog and it's just one of the most like well-rounded blog because there's just so much topics and so much it's like a wikipedia of you you should create a david like gpt or something I to just answer people's questions by using your blog's information this is like so much information going on but anyway okay let's talk about like the tech stack right like so um after like what are what are you using to kind of like pre-qualify people like is there any place that be that like a pitch book do people use pitch book to like do like due diligence or like how how are people doing due diligence on um lps and then i saw that like you know some of my friends came and share like they're um they met up with like thousands of lps and then like you know hundreds of them land but like i think to meet with like two thousand lps is like a challenge for people how do you even get that many people to pitch to and for to having thousands of conversation to pitch like I know a lot of people do that on zoom and like I wonder what is what does that look like can you give us like a rundown of like how people are doing these things is your question about how you originate the names of LPs um yeah and then also like qualify them or pre-qualify them or like doing due diligence about if something is legit and then if you know yeah in general yeah so i'll tell you a story a friend of mine was at a gplp conference where you it's basically a, a dating platform for gps and lps and he met with a guy and after talking to them for a bit he said you know you're 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 a wealthy guy but you're clearly not here to invest right like just he could tell from the q a he said what are you doing here and then I said, well, I told them I'm, an, I'm a wealthy person, which I am. And I got a free pass this conference for a couple of days and free food and drink. And I got to meet interesting people. And that's why I'm here. So that's, from my point of view, that's a huge waste of time, right? If I'm raising money to meet with that individual. And that's why you have to qualify people. So um, I've definitely been in situations where I meet with people. And I think the conversation is about them investing in me. And it turns out they really want me to invest in them, mm -hmm. a startup or whatever. Um, so welcome to the VC ecosystem. Exactly, exactly. So I will first clarify um, by saying, are you actively investing? I, I, I'm not subtle about that uh, in funds of the type like what, what we're doing. Um, and how many investments like this have you made in the past? If they've never made an investment in a fund, that is a pretty, it's pretty unlikely you're going to be there made an entry into the world of being an, an LP. Um, and then there's also a whole question about actually making sure the money's legit. It's not, you know, uh, from, from Russia and on a blacklist. So there are a variety of vendors out there that will do your KYC AML for you. Um, but I assume your conversation is more at the level of, are they people who actually have money to, to write checks? Um, another crude heuristic is look up their home address and look at their house, right? They're definitely wealthy people, people who have houses that they can't afford. Um, and they may have a lot more debt, but that's that's certainly crude heuristic that uh, I've used in certain cases just to understand um, something about their budget. Um, and 
I, I ask questions about their family as well to understand a little bit about where they're coming from and also identify points of commonality. And that usually provides some tells. Um, but I found that there are people who live way below their means, people who live well above their means. Um, and so it's not as indicative as you might think. How people dress, especially in tech, right, is often quite misleading. Um, so the real question is, are you investing in funds? What type of funds are you investing in? What type of funds have you invested in the past? Those are the most important qualifiers. Um, I've seen people with very little amount of track record um, who are like successfully raised and like, and like without basically like a lot of like, without a lot of indication of they will be a good fund manager, well, they turn out to be good or whatever, but like, obviously, if you heard of them, they're technically assuming they're good. So I wonder like, so, and then I also heard about the advice of like raising three fund altogether. Um, like, so I wonder what are, like, what would be the process like to, you know, you mentioned about like, you know, checking people's home address. I assume that's for more of like a wealthy individual as for your first bond. But like, I, I think there's like a couple of things there. Like the more it's like, if they're wealthy individual, even they're wealthy, they're still an individual, right? This is like not like a pension fund or like any other like institutional fund. Like people have more like emotions if things are not going right, right? So I wonder... Um, as for people raising their first fund, um, is there a place that like where you can see like all the LPs in like one place, like, you know, a Forbes minus list for like, you know, the top investors or, you know, Forbes 30 is 30 for founders or whatever. Like, so I wonder, is there some sort of list that kind of like indicates that these people are interested in investing and do people find that on PitchBook or like what tools do they use to get on there? Um, so I, um, sorry, I was trying to join the live chat. I, I, yeah. Uh, okay. Hi, Tegan. I, nice I just put in, Yeah. Uh, oh, Tegan. I know Tegan. Um, uh, I just put in a link. Maybe you could just recopy it over to the comments. Um, so I track the lists of LPs who focus on emerging managers on my blog. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, I would go to that link for my public database of it. Um, those lists are not quite as helpful as you think, um, because the reality is that that what really matters is do you resonate with that particular investor, right? Mm -hmm. So there are vendors out there who will sell you lists of thousands and thousands of names of high net worth individuals with their emails, and they're of limited value because cold emails don't have much value, right? You need oh. to figure out which ones will actually get excited about what you're doing. And uh, uh, and that depends on your particular strategy. The people you mentioned who have raised with a pretty limited track record, there's always a story, right? Maybe they were a star engineer at their prior company, so everyone who knows them says this person's going on to great things. Um, maybe they're uh, uh, from a family that's very well connected. There's always some reason that someone is able to successfully raise money with what appears to be a limited track record. Totally. Um, what is like, so basically like how do you build the track record? Like, or, okay. So let's, let's say if we find out that that person is like a wealthy individual by looking up their home address, what are things that we should do to like kind of keep the conversation going? And then after our first coffee chat, we kind of pre-qualify if they're interested. And then um, when you are reaching out to them, do you have to have a pitch deck ready? What kind of what level of preparation you need to do before you go out there to pitch yourself? And after they say, um, I'm kind of interested in committing X amount of dollar, like how do you keep basically like keep like qualified like how, how do you keep to keeping them into the loop? Although I listed so many tools there, but like, I'm not exactly sure how people technically use them to keeping people in the loop. Um, so um, in terms of what you should have, so I absolutely think you should have a deck, um, which effectively is your business plan um, before you start soliciting people. I know someone who raised a $70 million fund and didn't even have a deck. Why? Because he had successfully founded a company that grew to significant scale. But I think that's just not good corporate management, right? Like if you're going to commit for the next 10 years 
to go manage money for a bunch of people, you should at least have put some thought into what's the strategy, what's the fund construction. You should not be making up the stuff on the fly, right? It's it's to me sort of crazy not to invest that level of energy in planning ahead. Like I know people love the lean startup and pivoting and sort of acting on the fly, but but I, I think that good manager requires you do some planning as to what the heck you're trying to build. Um, so with regard to the question about how to keep them in the loop, so um, I my framework is not how to keep them in the loop. My framework is how do I close them, right? Hmm. So ideally, if we have a meeting and it seems positive, I will make sure to say, okay, what are next steps? What additional information will help you make a decision? And they will often say, I want to look at your data room or whatever, right? So fine. So I'll say, okay, can we schedule a fall meeting? And that puts pressure on them to look at the data room before that next meeting. And then that meeting, I'll say, oh, did you have any questions? Do you have a chance to look at the data room? And how much would you like to invest? Right now, inevitably, there's some people who say, I want to wait till the final close. Um, and so then they'll, um, uh, uh, Grace, if you could please share that link in comments for Renee. Yeah. Cool. Um, great to see uh, some friends of mine um, in the chat. Um, so, so inevitably for those people, um, you want to uh, have, ideally you have a mailing list uh, where you can send them periodic updates, but mailing lists that are just, here's the awesome stuff I'm doing, people unsubscribe from those really fast, right? So you ideally figure out some other way to add value to your community, like share with them the events you're involved with them, share with them new research. So for example, I use Digo, D-I-I-G-O, which is a tagging company. Um, and I use that to tag the sites that have information relevant to what I'm interested in. And uh, that serves my needs to just track my information, but that feed creates content that then is useful for other people who care about investment tech and merging managers and things like that, right? So I'm always interested in how do I, at low marginal cost, because I don't want to commit to write an essay a day, um, create relevant content for my followers. Similarly, I have a public events calendar Unsurprisingly, the sort of events that I'm involved in are events related to emerging managers and investment tech and diversity and other things that interest me. And so people in that ecosystem, they find that helpful as well and gives them also in a reason to stay engaged with me. And so they'll sign up for my mailing list, they'll sign up on the blog, and that reminds them that I exist. And then hopefully we'll have some business relationship later on. Totally. Hi, Renee. Hi, women. Um, so I wonder uh, when you were thinking about like, um, so managing your fund, right? Like what does a back office look like? And then you mentioned about data room for the audience who are maybe racing for the first time. Can you elaborate more about like, you know, everything? Um, so I am a little hesitant to give tech recommendations in a vacuum because it depends on what you're comfortable with, what you know. Um, I'd say the foundational technology that I would recommend is a CRM um, because this is a relationship-driven business. Um, I know a number of funds that started with an Airtable or a Google Sheet, but inevitably it doesn't scale. So I think it's absolutely worth the money. I did an extensive search on this. I wrote a blog post around what is the optimal CRM and marketing tech stack mm -hmm. for an emerging VC. For me, I ended up using HubSpot. And one of the reasons was as soon as I signed up with HubSpot, I turned off um, Calendly because I didn't need it anymore. I turned off um, uh, MailChimp because I didn't need them anymore. Um, and I turned off about three other tools because HubSpot was a one-stop one shop for all of those tools. HubSpot also has a startup program, which uh, you as a VC can likely qualify for, where you pay 10% of the regular price. Obviously, it ramps. By year three, you're in a paid market price. Um, but, uh, but that helps to make the cost more affordable. Mm -hmm. um, so... I think it's a mistake to try and do it with just uh, uh, spreadsheets and Google Sheets early on because it's never, ever going to scale, right? You can't build an institutional firm um, by relying on that. And there's always this huge pain of moving the data over. So I'd suggest, you know, bite the bullet and pay for a real CRM earlier. Mm. So in the audience, Chere mentioned what platform do you use for your data room? So if you're an emerging manager, you're cost sensitive. So DocSend is the most commonly used tool, I would say, for most folks for a data room. Um, and probably suffices. That's what I've been using. And then there's a question from Tegan who asked about uh, what percentage of meetings did you give a miss 
uh, to did you reject a founder that later went on to be a decent deal? So I don't have the exact data, but I certainly have some some past experiences or anecdotes of companies where I'm like, ah, I should have invested in them. Um, Carta, we looked at years ago and didn't invest because uh, just for whatever reasons at that time. Um, and that's inevitable. That's the nature of the VC industry uh, that you're going to see lots of companies that some chunk of which go on to be winners. There's another company where we turned them down because they had some huge red flags in DD, um, like what looked like fraud. And then the company ended up exiting for a very nice amount. And it may still have been fraud, but the founders built something that someone else found value in. Um I wonder, like, I want to circle back on, like, the point of, um, you know, after, like, how we close the deal, right? Like, after we do these events and then after we kind of update them within our um, mail ecosystem, uh, you mentioned using HubSpot, HubSpot for, like, kind of, like, follow-up, right? So I personally like to keep, like, everything more casual. Like, I heard that from other friends as well. So, like, people are communicating between, like, WhatsApps and other things, um, I kind of feel like it's really hard to keep on track of something. So I wonder if there's any tool that's, or like, you know, some people would build um, uh, leveraging Zapier or whatever, like connecting all the tools together. And I wonder, I feel like some of the tools are overkill. And then like, you know, I just started using Superhuman, but like, I feel like it's good, but it's also like, maybe I'm like not really getting the essence of it. I haven't really found it like to most, I, I didn't really make the most out of the platform yet. So I wonder what are like some tools that you feel like is essential for people to look at. And then instead of like, we kind of like build our own like tool pack or like toolbox, what are something that's like, you feel like it's working for most of the, you know, emerging fund managers? Um, so I'm a superhuman user, really like it. Um, it's, I, I use it sort of like my own little chat GPT um, mm -hmm. writer because I have so many templates stored there. Um, mm -hmm. And I've gotten very fast at, at, you know, I get a certain standard inquiry and I hit the standard response and boom. So I don't need to go to chat GPT anymore to go draft a response because I have something queued up that's appropriate for that particular person with some mm -hmm. minor modifications. Um, they're ridiculously overpriced, by the way. It's one of the most expensive personal productivity tools in the market. Wait, um, which one is? Uh, Superhuman. Um, mm. If you look at their pricing compared with other tools that sell to a lone wolf user. Um, but I'm still paying it, I admit. So, uh, so clearly I'm getting some value. Um, but if I found another vendor mm -hmm. with some functionality, I would uh, jump on it. Um, it's somewhat interesting to me. I haven't used their AI functionality, which is built in. And LinkedIn also has some built-in AI tools, and I just haven't used it much. And I think the reason is because so many of my posts are short, and so the time to tell the AI what to do and then edit what the AI outputs, it's faster for me just to write it. That may reflect the fact I'm a fast typist and I'm a fast writer, um, but I'm surprised at how I'm not using AI much for short stuff. My use of AI for writing is exclusively for longer things like I have to write a, a two-page analysis of something, then it's helpful for for um, doing a first draft of it or aggregating data or so stuff like that. Um, so other tools, I'd say Docsend, very heavily used. We talked about that earlier um, by emerging managers. Um, and, uh, and then LinkedIn, especially as Twitter is busy, I would argue, self-destructing. I started to use LinkedIn more aggressively. Um, because there are real people there and there's very little obnoxious, Nazi, you know, offensive behavior on LinkedIn. So it's just a more pleasant place to be. Um, and so I've been ramping that up and I'm looking for tools to do that more effectively. Um, then um, another tool that I see people, a lot of people use is Airtable as effectively a MVP for certain internal data sharing use cases. I talked earlier about using it instead of a CRM. And you know, if you're a small farm, you're very cost sensitive. I get it. That's why people do it. Um, it's just not the long-term solution because it is offering you two percent of the functionality of a real CRM. Mm. So after, like, let's say, like we use um, after, like. So I'm just going back to like in reality how this um how these tools applied into our daily life, right? So when after we 
go to the event um we create it and then we send out mass email through hubspot to these people to follow up and then we go there follow up whatever like using zoom like do you prefer to meet people face to face or do you feel like zoom is okay um so my hierarchy is face to face phone call and then zoom um so especially oh, during COVID, really? yeah especially during COVID, i got really burnt out on doing zooms I spend enough of my life looking at screens. I don't want to look at screens more. Um, and so on my personal scheduling link, I default to phone calls and then people can request a Zoom if they want. Um, because I find that there's, uh, and there's some academic research supporting this, that it just creates more mental wear and tear to look at a screen, some picture of someone's. I'm happy to look at them live, right? That, that's great. Um, but I'd rather have the ability to walk around and, and um, uh, and just not feel tied to the screen um, the way you are on Zoom, where the social protocols, you have to look at the person, even though you're really looking at a picture of the person. And uh, uh, and that creates extra friction. I also say that inevitably there are pop-ups and distracting things in my computer screen. Um, and so I'd rather just turn off the screen and, uh, uh, and then just talk with the person on the old-fashioned phone. I wonder when you are... Okay, so after that... We um we kind of like follow up with them over like have like step stack again by like you know sending them more like follow up email <laughs> to them, and then at what point we close? Uh, well, as they said in um, uh, as they say, always be closing, right? So, um, so this is one of the biggest challenges of merging managers is you very very often hear from LPs. Love what you're doing. Very exciting. You know, I want to invest in the final close, right? Yeah. So how the heck do you actually get the money now when you need it to get to your first close? In fact, there's a well-known allocator in New York who specializes in diverse fund managers and they're called first close partners, right? Because their whole sales pitch is we help you get to your first close. Good for that. Oh my God. Um, so, so I've talked with a bunch of people. No one has a good solution. Um, I certainly in the past, I've uh, used certain incentives, like financial incentives, where you get um, benefits if you commit to a first close. I think that helps, but it's not a magic potion where people suddenly are dramatically more likely to invest early. Um, I find, if anything, sadly, it's the slightly less sophisticated investors, uh, we're talking about retail, not institutional, who will sometimes invest in the first close because they don't think through the option value of waiting till the final close right where you effectively are buying not into a blind pool but a pool where you already have some assets the sophisticated investors will say oh i'll invest in the final close and i'll say to them well you know we need the money now so it's it's uh it's sort of a just a maddening aspect of fundraising for a fund um what i try and emphasize is that we still have discretion in our lps right so often people invest with a goal to getting co-invests and I'll subtly highlight that the LPs are coming early. We're going to particularly keep them in mind when they're direct investment opportunities, right? So I, it, it's not the sort of thing you put in a contract, but I will uh, typically. Um, but hopefully they realize that if they're willing to cut the check now, then I, and then they're more likely to get the call when Sequoia is leading around one of my companies, um, one of the companies we're linked to, and they want to co-invest in that deal. Mm. Um. How do you convince the first like signal investor? We're not talking about like convincing a regular investor, like my friend or whatever. Like I'm talking about like um like a sequoia or whatever. Like they would invest in you, so others see the signal, then they would invest. Yeah. So um, signal investor depends on your industry, right? If Kim Kardashian invested in us, I'm not sure. Like she's well known. But it's not really strategically relevant. Although, yes, we will take her money if she's listening to this, this discussion. Please listen, Kim, please. That's right. That's <laughs> right. We'll, we'll put her photo on the website. Um, yeah. so, uh, so I would say that that you, ideally, those sort of folks, um, you want to pitch them to be a venture partner with your firm, an advisory board member, and investor, right? The cash is the real commitment. But something else where you get the ability to use them in the deck and you want to emphasize them that you recognize that they are an influencer. They can really add value to you beyond just their money. And you're going to honor that by, by featuring them in whatever way they want, 
right? Some people mm -hmm. want to be behind the scenes, other people want to be prominent on your website. Um, so that goes to the earlier question of what are their real goals? What are their emotional goals? And if someone says, I've had people say to me, I, I feel like I'm sort of unknown, like I'm people don't know who I am, I'm trying to raise my visibility in the industry. Okay, so I can help the person do that, right? Put them on the website, put them on a podcast, introduce them to conference organizers, stuff like that. Um, and so, <clears throat> so I would generally, as you think about the hierarchy of whom you meet with for fundraising, I would start with the people who will give you honest feedback. That's super important, right? So those are usually your friends. It's very hard to get honest feedback from investors. Um, then once you've done that, ideally 10 times and your pitches are fine, your deck is refined, then you move to the, um, uh, the less experienced investors who are usually the people who are not the lighthouse signal clients, right? Um, but those are the people where hopefully you can get a little bit of momentum because the hardest part of all is being the very first commitment, right? So I'd rather meet with, say, the well-known CEO once I could say we have a couple of mid-level executive type investors, because then the CEO type is more likely to feel, okay, I'm lending my name, I know my name is value, but some other people have already committed. When, so a lot of people are um, thinking about building a network of, let's say like these like Fortune 500 executives or whatever, like SLPs, right? Would they actually help? Because I feel like unless they have like enough stake in the game, that's actually gonna move Nito, like, do you see people like after they back a certain fund actually help the portfolio? Uh, yes, I've seen it, but it's not a simple financial calculation of, oh, I've invested X dollars in that fund, so I'll put more energy in their companies versus this other fund where I wrote a little tiny check, right? A lot of this is driven by, did you ask for help, mm. right? The more you ask for help with specific queries, the more responsive people are. Um, I know one platform for investors where they have certain standard asks and they find that people in their community will sometimes help out companies, even if they have no direct financial investment, just because who's a typical investor? It's often a semi-retired person, right? They've got time on their hands. They have expertise <laughs> and they want to be relevant. They want to be involved with some young, exciting mm -hmm. entrepreneur. And this is a way they can do it. So that it's really the burden is on you to make the ask and nudge the person to help out. And it's kind of like one of the rules in multi-level marketing is the, the three foot rule, anyone within three feet of you who you solicit. So if you're fundraising, anyone within three feet of you, you have to ask them for money or ask them for an intro is appropriate because you are gonna get rejected a lot. You just have to budget for that. And you gotta go out there and, and hustle and take the pain, take the nose. Mm. How many no's do you, like, I feel like when, like, so if you're like pitching for your fund, at what point do you feel like this is actually a no or like, you know, you always hear about these story of like people pitching before the investor are finally one land. And then I feel like after I pitch, let's say if I pitch 20 people and then no one say anything, I would just quit at that point. Um, what is like a good signal of like if you're doing something meaningful and like it's just not the right person or like um, what's a benchmark of like this is it like usually. Not you, but like the person. So I, I think of this question as should you pivot, right? Meaning should you change your model based on market feedback? Should you persist and just be bullheaded and keep pushing? And entrepreneurial history is full of founders who kept pushing along in the face of obstacles. Or do you plank and declare defeat? I'm dead. I'm going to go get a job somewhere. So I would say that whatever you're doing, you're building a startup, you're building a fund. Mm -hmm you need to show new wins at least every quarter, right? That means you get a new team member to join you, you get a new LP to command. If you can't do that, if you can't get anyone to give you a win other than yourself and your core team who are already there, that's a sign that maybe you should pivot or perish, right? Because I said earlier that VC history is full of people who just persisted, but it's also full of people who persisted for 10 years and had nothing to show for it, right? Or five years, whatever. Right. So it's very, very difficult to decide. Are you the smart person who's persisting to face obstacles going to be a winner? Or are you just being stupid and you should just shut it down and go do something else? Um, mm -hmm. and so that's why I'm proposing this quarterly heuristic of do you get some meaningful wins in that quarter that show that someone out there besides you thinks that your startup has merit?
Mm. Um, so I think this is one of the reasons why I think that startups should pay their founders something, because if you maybe have savings, so you don't think you need a salary, but you have a huge opportunity cost. If you're qualified to be CEO of a startup, that your time has value, right? And you are completely ignoring that if you don't pay yourself a salary, right? And, or at least very explicitly think about it and talk with your, your partner about this, um, if you have a partner, um, because uh, you're losing that opportunity cost every month that you get by going back to your old job. Mm. Um, I guess like if your first fund turned out to be terrible, um, or let's say because we're in a startup land, let's say you lead like five syndicates and then they, um, none of them like move forward to something like, how would you turn that into a fund? Or maybe you're just like shit investor should not do that at all. Well, you, but like the person. Yeah. So the reality is there's a lot of luck in this business and there's certainly people who lost money in their first five investments and then they have a winner. Um, so I would say that the people who found emerging VCs are the most overqualified underpaid people on the planet, right? The sort of person who founds a VC, they were a product manager at Google, they were an exit tech entrepreneur, they could do stuff where they're earning some very meaningful amount of money and they choose to launch a fund where typically you're not gonna make any money for the first few years. And then maybe you make some money if you get carry, if you get carry, but many funds never actually generate carry, right? So. Um, so I think you should be well aware that this is at best a get rich slow industry. And we're seeing now this washing out of people who got into VC because it was hot and exciting and they thought they could get rich quick. And those people are fading out because they realize, oh, wait, a lot of risk, a lot of illiquidity. You have to make a long term commitment to this. You have to stay in the game long enough to actually catch an upcycle and get some some winners. Mm. I was um the other day I was listening to Samel from Haystack like he was talking about like his early days how hard it was for him to like get started I, I don't think it was like how hard it was but it was about like he was like you know um I don't know like I, I just hear about like these like solo GP stories they are really interesting and then people don't really imagine people just imagine you're like so rich and then so you're like investing but um some other people I feel like a lot of people work really hard too create their own path and create their own fund um i wonder when you're thinking about the management fees like so some people are um i chat with other vcs and then they mention like oh one of the advantage could be you know you just don't charge management fees and i heard some people raise one million dollar fund and then they never charge anything and i wonder like it's not a good way to go or like because you know if you don't really pay yourself and then you're like you know, working on this thing and then like, are you really motivated? And like, are you, I guess like, is this like actually gonna effectively help you close bigger tracks? Um, so I think that um, very few people make decisions on investing based primarily on the fees. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, when I was in business school, we had uh, the number two guy from the Yale endowment come in and he said they did an analysis of the correlation between post fee returns and fees. Mm. And you might a priori think, well, the higher the fees, the worse your post fee returns. They found the reverse. The more they paid in fees to funds, the higher the post fee returns. And the reason was the top performing funds, the Sequoias of the world can charge higher fees, but they actually delivered, right? So who cares that you're paying them 30% carry because you, you're getting great returns. Um, so I, uh, in fact, if anything, I think when people see that you're charging below market fees, they think, why are you doing that, right? You're supposed to be an economic mm -hmm. animal um, and you're, you're showing that you're not able to raise capital on regular fees. So I'm generally pretty skeptical of thinking that this is gonna solve your problems. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I'm, because there, there's definitely negative signaling associated with it. I'll give you a creative example. I know a fund in in Europe. Uh, this is a hedge fund. And when you invest, you have the choice of three fund structures. You can pay them two and 20 or one and 30 or zero and 40. Once you commit, mm -hmm. you can't change it. But I really like that, right? Because they're saying we're happy to share the risk, right? But then you have to pay us more. And I, I think it gets around the signaling bias. They're comfortable not taking management fees and running the business without them. 
but there's a cost to that. Mm. Okay. On that note, I know we're running out of time. Um, thank you so much, David. Um, do you have time to address um, our one of our audience's last question, or do you feel like we need to move on? Um, so we had one question about, have you, uh, have you ever invested in a company that failed and then invested in them again? So yes, um, I and other, certainly other people in VC have invested in people who failed on round one, usually because we said, look, they fail, failure happens, but they did a great job in managing the company by the failure, right? So it's like a football coach, inevitably they lose some games, but if we feel they managed the team well, they did the best they could given the circumstances. Um, and then their lead athlete got a big accident and was out of commission, not their fault. Um, so that's the real test is to do the attribution analysis of why the failure happened. Thank you so much, David. Thank you so much to the audience for coming. And okay, so um, David, do you want to uh, share with us where can we find you? Sure. So best way to find me is at tedden.com. If you're an emerging fund manager, check out coolwatercap.com and apply for our accelerator program. We are the top rated accelerator for emerging managers in the industry. Uh, and if you're interested in investment technology, join us at pevctech.com. We run events and publish research around how you can accelerate returns using our technology. Amazing, thank you so much, David. What a great conversation. Okay, I'm gonna end the stream right now.